The bail reform legislation we've just tabled in the House of Commons zeroes in on repeat violent offenders who use guns and other weapons. With this proposed law, the onus will now be on them to justify to a court why they shouldn't remain in custody as they wait for a trial. Well, that was earlier today. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, along with Justice Minister David Lametti and other cabinet ministers, uh, unveiling changes to Canada's bail system. This is Bill C-48, the bail reform uh, that the government had said was coming. Uh, they've certainly been under pressure from uh, police organizations, from premiers, arguably from Canadians, uh, to make changes to bail. Uh, after all of these stories we've heard about repeat offenders who have been out on bail, committing crimes, including including one uh, who had been out on bail, then skipped trial and is charged with first-degree murder in, in the death of an OPP officer. And that case was, I think, really a catalyst for this conversation and, and for the premiers coming together, police organizations, and calling on the federal government to make some changes. So the federal government says it's delivering on that. They're bringing in new measures, they say, that will make it more difficult for some repeat violent offenders to get released on bail. Uh, They are reversing the onus, they say, when it comes to those charged with serious violence offenses involving a weapon. And in cases where the person was convicted of a similar violent offense within the past five years, which they say will make it harder for those individuals to get bail. But they'll still be able to to make the argument for why they should. So why are repeat violent offenders getting bail in the first place? Uh, Do these changes go far enough in addressing that? What are the changes do we need when it comes to our, our justice system to address what we're seeing uh, on our streets right across the country? Well, joining us uh, for some analysis, someone we've spoken to before about these issues, uh, follows all, all of this very closely. Scott Newark, a former uh, security policy advisor to the Ontario government, to the federal government uh, under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and himself a former Crown Prosecutor right here in Alberta. Scott, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you again. Well, and we've spoken about this before, and we kind of knew yeah, this was coming. Uh, did, did anything surprise you today, first of all? Um, no. Uh, let me just say that um, I think there are some uh, issues that are cause for some optimism, but the bill itself is, uh, frankly, in my view, uh, relatively minor tweaks. Mm-hmm. And the biggest uh, point about it is, and I'll start from the p- position of optimism, uh, because I, although I don't normally find myself doing this, when all this was going on, when all of this controversy uh, was uh, going on, and, you know, the premiers were getting together, and there was a letter sent off and everything, and the police organization speaking up, uh, the federal attorney general, David Lametti, actually said, well, you know, this is actually much more complicated than just bail reform. And I, he's completely right. Yeah. And so, as you said in your introduction, there are a number of issues that are that go well beyond bail, and in fact, even are within provincial jurisdiction. Okay, that need to be dealt with about this uh, concern in the uh, crime being committed by repeat offenders, especially violent crime being committed uh, by uh, repeat offenders. And it's issues we've talked about for years. Uh, I'll uh, flip it to you when I uh, get get the approval. I've got an article coming out in Frontline Security that goes through all of this, but it's absolutely true because one of the key features of our criminal justice system is that there's a disproportionately large volume of crime 
committed by a disproportionately small number of offenders. And when you take steps either by policy or operational actions, you can get real substantive change. And that's what's required here more than, as I say, just making a couple of tweaks to the uh, to the uh, bail uh, sections of the criminal code, which is really all this does. Right. And we're talking about bail. We're talking about, you know, that that aspect of the system in between arrest and trial. Right. So we've got all these other issues like the resources to investigate crimes, make arrests for prosecutors to bring these cases forward, to get convictions, to get meaningful sentences, to monitor these these offenders once they're released on probation. Where where does bail rank in terms of priorities in in all of that context? Um, I think it's uh, simply a manifestation of a larger problem. And um, it goes even beyond the, uh, the court system. Uh, on one of the cases that uh, you were uh, uh, referencing that was here in Ontario, I'd heard from some police friends of mine that the guy that was the offender who was, I'm trying to remember, I think he was actually on, uh, he'd been on um, a correctional release and then there was a warrant out for his arrest yeah. and nobody ever found him and then he killed, you know, uh, a couple of people. And I would actually had my friends tell me that, you know, listen, uh, the word was out to the cops. Uh, this guy's uh, native and he lives on uh, a reserve, or that's where we believe he lives. So uh, don't go and uh, go looking for him because it's going to be controversial. Mm. Okay? And, you know, uh, we uh, I, I've been involved over the years with uh, helping put together repeat um, high-risk offender programs within the police and with, uh, in partnership with uh, prosecutors. First one, I think, was, uh, was actually called uh, the Repeat Offender Parole Enforcement, or ROPE Squad. And it was a very, very good idea, and it worked very well. And so operationally, you targeted those people who you knew were going to be committing more and more crimes with you know, your tactical resources. And so that's a very good idea. And there was a, uh, I don't know whether you saw it, but uh, just uh, relatively recently, uh, the province of Ontario has announced that they're going to provide more funding for that. And other provinces are starting to talk about things like that as well. And that's why when all of this got started, and I I want to just say right off the top that I think a big part of the reason that it got started was because of the informed journalism that was reporting on the specifics of the cases involved, but also the systemic issues, which meant that the public was hearing the truth that they needed to hear, and that made it a more of a political priority. And so over the years I've been involved, as you mentioned, uh, I've worked at different levels of government, where you get these, you know, um, uh, in effect provinces coming together to say to the feds, hey, we need some changes. That made me very optimistic. Because that is quite frequently the uh, the catalyst for change, and this is a fairly small step uh, in the right direction. But look, the bill is well drafted. It's got um, a preamble that's detailed, and by uh, that's the stuff at the beginning of the bill that goes whereas, in other words, it's the explanation for it. And by constitutional law, uh, in considering whether a bill is unconstitutional or not, including. A violation of the charter, the courts are obliged to consider the preamble. And so attention was really paid to these different sections. But we've got to get to the point, and two, two principles uh, I, I'd really like to stress here because it's important uh, on all of this. Uh, number one, 
Our justice system was not invented yesterday, even though the Federal Department of Justice may think it's so. Uh, it is part of our culture. It goes back for centuries. And one of the key components that we've had in our justice system is that the public officials, cops, prosecutors, judges, and to a different extent, depending on you know what the, uh, their mandate is, even uh, probation or correctional officers, are given discretion. And it's that's part of our system. They make judgments. It is not a one-size-fits-all system. And I think one of the biggest problems that we've got is that we have devolved into that, as well as um, an increasingly risk-averse system where the people with authority, ooh, I don't want to use my authority here, or, you know, like on one of the cases where the guy was granted after being denied bail and he was granted it again, did the Crown appeal it? No. Those are the kinds of things, because one of the lessons that I learned at the time as a, as a Crown prosecutor and throughout my time since then is that the genius of our justice system is its ability to deal with this offender, this offense. Yeah. Okay, and that's the way our system was set up. And, yeah, you can add a few more offenses onto the reverse onus. Uh, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that the person's automatically going to be denied bail. And we'll have to see if uh, the consideration is not given properly as to the way that it is uh, or should be. Then, you know, what's the Crown going to do about it? Because they're the ones who would then have the uh, jurisdiction say, do I need to appeal this? And there are a whole slate of other reforms that are specifically in relation to repeat offenders that um, we absolutely need to uh, take action on. As I said when I uh, left being a prosecutor in Alberta, which I absolutely love the job, is I got tired of tripping over the mistakes of the parole system in my courtroom, and I realized that the only way to change it was to change federal laws, because that was the jurisdiction. And that meant working in Ottawa. And we still have a lot of work to do, trust me. I would imagine that for, for prosecutors, when it comes to the decision whether to, to appeal, um, you know, Judge Grant's bail, you know, and, and maybe prosecutors got to pick their battles. And ultimately, what you got to remain focused on is, is securing the conviction. How do you weigh those decisions then in terms of do, do you pursue That's this? Do you remain focused on the, the trial, right? Uh, the whole point about the officials having the discretion is, you know, you don't automatically argue for somebody to be denied bail. There are grounds for already articulated in the criminal code, by the way, for which uh, people can be denied bail. Like, number one, that they're not going to show up in court if they're released on bail. Number two, they're going to commit more crimes. Or number three, that granting them bail uh, will undermine public confidence in the system. So, you know, that's already there. And yes, this bill does add a couple sections. I was glad to see that, uh, you know, there is something about mandating that the court must take into consideration, you know, community safety. By the way, that's already in the criminal code sections, but, yeah. you know, another manifestation of it. This bill will send a message, in my opinion, uh, to judges that, you know, uh, guys, uh, you know, we need to do a better job here in dealing with these people. And that, you know, may well mean that... Um, and although I got to tell you, one of the other deficiencies that uh, you know people don't pay attention to is we don't provide the details that we gather on who are these people committing crimes. Okay, and by the way, just as a, as an example, 
it's a crime to commit uh, uh, another offense or breach the conditions of your bail or your probation. But you know what? If you're on parole and you breach the conditions, it's not an offense. Why not? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And StatsCan, when it reports on the crime statistics, and in all fairness, they've gotten a little bit better. Uh, but, uh, you know, guess what? We don't report the number of crimes committed by people who were on bail or probation. We gather that data. Why don't we report it? So the other part to consider, too, is that even if bail is denied and the suspect is kept uh, in custody until his trial, that suspect is likely going to get credit for that time served. The ultimate period in which they're behind bars is, is going to be the same, isn't it? Yeah, you and I have discussed this before. Uh, this is it's uh, outlined in, for anybody who's interested. It's in Section 719 of the Criminal Code. Uh, and it says that, uh, and by the way, it's, it's not mandatory that you get their, that they get the credit. Uh, and in my day, uh, you know, when it was with repeat offenders and they were denied bail, guess what? They were, uh, it, that was known as uh, dead time because they weren't going anywhere. And so you know what almost always happened? They pled guilty and the case got dealt with and done. And then in the, would have been in the, uh, oh, I guess uh, mid to late 90s in Ontario, some uh, judges had been complaining about the conditions in the remand centers. That's where people are kept as opposed to prisons uh, if they've been denied bail, that, you know, they weren't suitable for them and they weren't as nice as prisons and everything else. And the provincial government at the time didn't do anything about it. And so the judges, it started in Ontario, the judges started saying, well, okay, I'm going to give you extra credit for the time that, you know, you were denied bail because the circumstances were so terrible. And it started at two for one, went up to three for one, and even got to like four for one. And guess what? You know who figured out that more than anybody else? The bad guys and their lawyers. So they didn't plead guilty because they knew they were going to get extra credit for the time that they served. And you can check that. That was uh, reported years ago by... Uh, uh, correctional uh, by the crime stats that the numbers of people in custody had increased but the increase was like monumentally higher for people who'd been denied bail and by the way when you actually read the wording in section 719 of the criminal code the idea of giving extra credit uh, it, it's just so contradictory to what the wording is because it says first of all that the sentence starts on the day that it's imposed really Read that in the uh, newspaper when you see, oh, yeah, so-and-so is sentenced to seven years. You have to read the fine print to go, oh, well, actually, it isn't that, because he was given this extra credit for the time served. And it also says in there that the court may do this, and that's, it's, that's may, not must, give that credit if the person was denied bail because of the offense that they were charged with. Well, wait a minute. If you're dealing with a repeat offender, okay, um, they're denied bail not just because of the offense that they were denied, but also because of the record. So the expression is expressio unius exclusio alterius, which is that if you say one thing, that excludes the other. I would make the argument, and I don't believe anyone's ever tried, that that means that for people denied bail because of their past record, they're not entitled to that. You know, if you think about it, what we're actually doing with these people, we're rewarding repeat offenders. It's crazy. 
It is. There's well, a lot more that needs to be done. Well, that's that's the takeaway. A baby step, that's good. Let's not pat ourselves on the back too much because yes. we've got a lot of work to do here. Yes. Absolutely. Scott Newark, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. No problems. Good talking to you again. Bye-bye. Cheers. Uh, there you go. Scott Newark, former Crown Prosecutor here in Alberta. Also, as mentioned, worked as a, a security advisor, policy advisor to the Ontario government, uh, to the federal government as well. So, great overview of some of the challenges we face when it comes to our justice system. And, and bail is one part of that, but there's, there's so much more to it. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. Much more to get to, but we've had a lot of revelations recently regarding Chinese interference in Canada. Uh, trying to interfere in Canadian elections, targeting politicians, targeting diaspora communities. And so it seems like it's been one revelation after another. I think all of this, if nothing else, will or should be a wake-up call uh, because this problem is not new. Uh, China has been engaging in uh, versions of this, variations of this for years, literally decades. With some pretty important and, and somewhat shocking testimony last week uh, before the Commons Committee that's studying foreign interference. Uh, Michelle Juno Katsua is a security and intelligence analyst, a former uh, chief of the Asia Pacific Unit with CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, was before the committee last week and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Michelle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Uh, you know, the fact that we're holding these hearings, uh, that, that this is all being talked about, does it feel like something has changed? Is there more of a willingness now maybe to finally address this, or is that too optimistic? Well, I can say that in the last 40 years that I've been in the game, uh, it's the first time that I see this momentum and this historical opportunity that we finally have to talk about this issue, as you've mentioned in the introduction, that we've known for decades. Um, you pointed out that I was uh, I am the former chief of Asia Pacific for CSIS, and I was in the mid-90s doing a research with, uh, in cooperation with the RCMP. And we discovered right there in the middle of uh, the 90s that the embassy of, Ch- of China gave money to both the Liberals and the Conservative Party uh, to, uh, at the same year. Uh, so they were working on all front already. Now, back in the 90s, they were a little bit clumsy. And if we would have intervened uh, at that time, we would have probably been capable to change the course of history. But uh, all all governments since have neglected to do anything. And uh, what happened is the Chinese got better at their game. Very, very bigger yeah. and very, very, um, uh, tr- very uh, audacious at the same time. But I must say, from Mr. Maroney all the way to Mr. Trudeau, every single government has been compromised. Every single go- uh, prime minister has been warned. Every single prime minister ignored our uh, uh, warning, either for selfish interest, partisanry, or simple negligence. So uh, somewhere, somehow, it's not only a question of this current government. He's no better or worse than the previous ones. They all did it. Right. So as we've seen these stories come to light, I mean, you know, the situation with Michael Chong recently, the revelations about previous elections and, and writing nominations. I don't imagine you're really surprised by any of this, are you? No, no, not really surprised indeed, because we've seen them and we observe them for all those 
30 years uh, uh, operating out of Toronto, out of Calgary, out of Vancouver, Ottawa. Uh, very, very aggressive uh, multitude of, of uh, operations and, and, and working on several fronts where they work into the community to bully the community, to monitor the community, and to try to sort of quiet the dissidents as much as, much as possible, try to identify the uh, uh, candidates or elected officials who are uh, uh, critique of uh, China and try to neutralize them by either starting campaign of, of disinformation on their reputations, on their activities, uh, and promoting and supporting people who uh, would be favorable to, to China, giving them help uh, to gain access to all political level, municipal, federal, and provincial. So that's one thing. We're talking about the federal, but let's put it this way. The municipal and the provincials are equally targeted and have been penetrated as well. Right. And so what kind of tactics do they use? We, we've seen some of this come to light in some of these reports recently, but how do they go about this? It depends on the target yeah. they, they, are, they are going after. If they are going after the community, they will have various targets of intimidation. They will recruit people within the community that will become agent of influence or what Stalin used to call the useful idiots, that will be working for them uh, in identifying uh, dissidents, taking pictures of them, taking pictures of their family, uh, posting personal information about them so they can be harassed and they can be bullied by, by, by others. If they go after political figures, they are trying to sort of uh, recruit them, uh, uh, even supporting them financially or bringing a uh, foreign Chinese student to uh, work within the community and, and, and telling people who to vote for, who not to vote for, uh, sometimes also going after, like I said a moment ago, against the critique and trying to sort of uh, start a, a spear campaign to sort of uh, destroy their reputation. If they go after intellectual property, they will try to recruit uh, people within the academic world or within the industry world in order to steal intellectual property, you know, in order to steal technology so they can bring it back. So there, there's a multitude of, of, of work that they've been doing and they've been doing it to the highest level. Uh, there's no accident why Mr. Harper gave to uh, Nixon the permission to be sold when we're not even capable to buy a corner store in China. Yeah. It, it's like there's a lack of reciprocity. We have a trade deficit with that country, and they have over 136 diplomats right here in Canada when our greatest partner, the American, have half of that. So what's What's the reason if we have a trade deficit with those guys? It's because 70% of the Chinese diplomats are actually conducting spy activity. Right. Uh, and, and they're able to get away with it. I mean, we finally just expelled one, but that came after yeah. pretty high-profile revelation and, and weeks of pressure on the government. But otherwise, they, they've been getting away with this for years. You're absolutely right. And, and to that effect, CSIS have suspected that unfortunately Global Affair, which is our foreign ministry, uh, uh, has been also compromised for many, many, many years because many times when we brought information to the, the Prime Minister, uh, we were countered by uh, foreign affairs for a multitude of reasons they created or they, they, they had to uh, say not to take action against the, the, the Chinese. So, so this laxist, like I said, has been for decades now 
allowed the, the, the Chinese to really spread the Chinese, the foreign Chinese, to, to spread their tentacles uh, everywhere. Uh, but let's point out also that China is not the only country doing foreign interference. And that's the reason why we need to have and to adopt, just like Australia has done in 2018, a law specifically about foreign interference that will de define exactly what foreign interference is, what is reproachable and unacceptable action, and to have consequences. And I'm not talking about fine here. I'm talking jail time because foreign interference and people, Canadian helping foreign, in, in the domain of foreign interference, that's close to treason. Right. So in terms of responding, I mean, we can talk about what to do with these these diplomats. Um, but for those in Canada who are facilitating these efforts, working uh, knowingly with Chinese officials, uh, right, there's the law for a role, rather, for law enforcement for the courts to play in dealing with that. Yeah, exactly. And the problem that we're currently facing is that the law enforcement are ill-equipped uh, law-wise to be capable to sort of prosecute these people because the criminal code doesn't take in consideration what foreign interference is about. Uh, the, Info the Security Information Act is not uh, adequately uh, designed for that. So uh, it is very, very important at this point that we sort of get our own. Uh, I know there was talk about creating a, a foreign uh, agent uh, a registry, which is not a bad thing, but let's remember the limitation of that uh, uh, registry. Uh, it's just like the lobbyist registry that exists. Uh, uh, it doesn't prevent the lobbyists to have their, their personal and private uh, conversation with uh, a minister and to still doing their, their, those dealing, uh, shabby dealing. So we need to, to understand the limitation. And that's one of the reasons also why the idea of creating a brand new uh, law enforcement agency that will be separate from CSUS, separate from the RCMP, reporting directly to the House of Commons, nominated, the director nominated by the House of Commons, with the authority to investigate, to, to uh, 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 exercise search warrant, to prosecute without having to ask permission to anybody. Yeah, that would be interesting. In terms of dealing with these Chinese diplomats, we've expelled one, as noted. Uh, we could probably uh, do a lot more than that. What, what kind of options does the government have? Is it time to, to start maybe forcing more of these, quote-unquote, diplomats out of the country? Well, without creating a rift right away uh, uh, with, those, with China, we can simply not renew the positions uh, when they, they start leaving one by one because they, they are posted in Canada for a limited period of time and they are here at the discretion and the goodwill of, of Canada. If we want to reduce, which I think should do, we should reduce uh, very much the number of those diplomats in place because we know that great numbers, 70% actually, of them are performing spy activities and, and foreign interference activities. So cut them by half. We have a trade deficit. We cut them by half. We don't need so many uh, uh, Chinese diplomats right here in Canada. And yes, there is exchange in, 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 in Canadian, I'm oh, sorry, uh, Chinese descent uh, uh, Canadians here that travel back to China once in a while, but they can sort of uh, 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 do their normal business with the consular without having so many, because like I said, they are not performing uh, diplomatic uh, duty. And when we catch them, when finally we catch them, they are protected under the diplomatic uh, immunity rules. So 
At this point, what we need is, is it's another thing. And then when comes election, make sure that every candidate, every employee, uh, writing employees or volunteer, sign a declaration stating on their honor that they are not uh, acting on behalf of a foreign uh, country or as a foreign agent. And with a clear uh, with a clear statement on that form that if they are deceiving us, they will be punished. What do you make of what's been happening at CSIS? Clearly there's frustration, uh, you know, the whistleblowers that are trying to call attention to what's been going on and the inaction by government. They're trying to do their job, uh, but, I mean, do they have what they need to do their job? Or what do you make of the fact that, that a lot of this has been coming to light through these whistleblowers at CSIS? Well, they're trying to do their job, but at the same time, as I pointed out a little bit earlier, the system has been capable to hijack the process and the chain of command is uh, basically stopping at the premier uh, the prime minister's office uh if they want or not to do something what we witnessed in the past is that every single prime minister used the information to their advantage either by partisanship or simply to enrich themselves with china so uh we need to be capable now to have a more independent body that reports directly with more transparency uh, being capable to sort of report directly to the House of Commons, and therefore it will be a non-partisanship perspective. Currently, as we as we speak, because of the chain of command, because the way the law is 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 written, and because CSUS has to report only to the Prime Minister, they can hijack the process and 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 and, and prevent any action to be taken. We'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate your insight on all of this, Michelle. Thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great afternoon. You as well. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Security Intelligence Analyst Michelle Juno-Katsuyo, former chief of the Asia-Pacific Unit at CSIS. Uh, so calling attention to some of these big problems that we've been facing for a very long time as a country. He was uh, one of the experts who testified last week, as mentioned, at this Commons Committee looking into the matter of foreign interference. And, and maybe a sign that we're moving in a, in, in a new direction here, in that we've got this committee, we've got all of this happening. A lot of this has now burst into the open in a way that it hadn't really before. So uh, one sign of optimism, for optimism perhaps. <music> Welcome back. Well, as uh, war continues to rage in Ukraine uh, just over a year after the Russian invasion, all kinds of questions about where this conflict goes from here. What are the prospects for some kind of peace? What are the prospects for uh, a defeat of the Russian invaders? Of course, it speaks to a broader question as to why Putin invaded Ukraine in the first place. And what kind of public support is there? for this war in particular, and further to that, you know, for the, the worldview of Vladimir Putin and, and the ideology to which he subscribes. Maybe we're of the belief that it all kind of boils down to Putin, that the public doesn't support him, doesn't support this war, doesn't support his worldview, and then maybe once Putin's gone, all of these uh, problems and issues go away with him. A new book, though, uh, is warning against that level of optimism. Uh, that there is uh, widespread support in Russia uh, for this war and for Vladimir Putin. And in particular, we're seeing it among young people. So joining us to talk more about this uh, is Ian Garner. 
He's a historian, a Russia analyst, uh, and he's the author of a new book called Z Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. And he joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Garner, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. First of all, this symbol, the Z or, or the Z, and this has become rather prominent in Russia among supporters of Putin and the war. Maybe to outside observers, we're not as familiar with the, the symbol. Let's kind of use that as a jumping off point. Where, where did this come from and what does it represent? So in a sense, Z is the perfect symbol for what the Russian state is trying to do right now. It doesn't really mean anything. It has no foundation in Russian culture. It's written in Western script, not in the Russian alphabet. And it didn't mean anything. It was never used until the start of the war when the government needed something to try and rally its population around when it looked like the war wasn't going to be over in three days, but might carry on for months or as we're seeing already well into a second year. Right. And so what do we make of that? What does it tell us about, uh, you know, the propaganda in, in Russia or, you know, the, the fact that these, these symbols seemingly, you know, come out of nowhere? What it shows us is that the state is absolutely working in overdrive. And bear in mind, the Russian propaganda machine run by the state is really all consuming over there on television, in print media, and especially online. That machine is just working full time to try and create support for the war, to try and reassure the public that the war is going well, and to try and, what I argue in the book, ideologize a younger generation and teach them that war is the natural way of life. Right. And, and this is where it becomes concerning, because I think there's a sense or a hope in the West that, you know, really this problem begins and ends with Vladimir Putin, that he's got uh, control over the Russian state, that without him, though, there really isn't this kind of enthusiasm for, for militarism or these kinds of invasions. But what you're suggesting is that this goes a lot deeper than Putin. Absolutely. It would be a huge mistake for us to depose Putin or to see Putin be deposed by somebody else and to think that everything is somehow just going to go back to normal. The problems in Russian society run much more deeply. And what we see across every demographic in Russian society is support not just for this war, and that support is ebbing a little bit as things are going wrong. We're seeing the body count growing by the day, often very fast. But support for the idea of war in general, an embrace of the idea that Russia should be fighting the so-called collective West. That means NATO, America, France, Germany, and today Ukraine. So how do you go about getting a sense of the mood of, of young people? It's, it's difficult, I, I think, to try to get a sense of what the public mood is in Russia. But, you know, you reached out to, to many directly. Talk about the process of putting together this book and, and how you go about really gauging the sense of where young people in Russia are at. So there are, there are two ways in which I gathered a sense of what's happening. Firstly, I spent a lot of time looking at the social media networks where young Russians are expressing themselves just like young Canadians and young Brits and young Americans might be doing. They're documenting their lives online. They're documenting their interactions with the state. They are speaking sometimes the language of the state, that language of hatred, of war, of anti-Ukrainianism. Uh, 
And they're doing it on TikTok. They're doing it through dances, through memes, through videos. And then I reached out to some of those folks who are on social media and talked to them about their lives, what they believed, the ways that they interpreted the war, their relationship with the state, and often their antagonism towards the West and Western values. And what, what, what do those views reflect? What did you find? Well, the good news is that I found a lot of young Russians who do represent a hope for the future, who do want to see a different path going forward. But the much greater majority of people I spoke to and the much greater majority of people who I observed out in the wild spoke the language of the state. And we're expressing some really dark ideas, some really quite frightening things. And seeing 14-year-old girls, and you can read about this in the book, creating TikTok videos dressed in the uniform of the state's military youth groups and suggesting that Ukrainians need to be destroyed in order to save themselves, was, even as a researcher who's used to working on Russia and Russians, it was a pretty shocking experience. Right. And I mean, as for Ukraine itself, and we've heard different explanations in terms of the official Russian narrative as for why they invaded. But the kind of language we're seeing in Russia, the kind of language you were seeing uh, on on social media and speaking to some of these young people, uh, you know, that Ukraine is a a tumor. Ukraine is a disease, like pretty horrific stuff. It is. And, And you know, and this is in the title of the book, I call Russia a fascist state. And this rhetoric is deeply reminiscent of the fascism of of the past. This is a rhetoric that suggests that Ukrainians are somehow corrupted Russians, that they need to be cut out of the body politic so that Russia itself can be rejuvenated, regenerated and become healthy again. So where does this come from? I mean, is this coming from the education system? Is Has that been corrupted by this this sort of, uh, you know, political outlook? Is it coming from, from parents, the media? Like, what what is the infrastructure that, that is creating these, these fascist youths? Well, I mean, all, all of these things have a role to play, and in particular in the education system over the last couple of years, we've seen a real acceleration in the kinds of, extreme nationalist material being inserted into school lessons. The state is throwing huge amounts of money behind a number of military, paramilitary and patriotic youth groups so that if kids want to go out and participate in society, they're almost obliged to do so so through the state. But we're also seeing kids draw other kids into this world through their memes through looking cool on social media, through telling other kids it's fun to participate in what is often portrayed as a game of war and a game of militarism. So does the outcome in Ukraine have any bearing on on these trajectories inside of Russia? It, It depends what that outcome is. In a sense, the hope is that If the Russian defeat in Ukraine is so catastrophic that the state collapses completely, there is a chance that these feelings begin to ebb away. And there is a great opportunity for folks who don't want to see this this kind of language and this kind of politics spread to actually change Russia's path. But also that may, may lead us towards a period of 
chaos and tumult where young people are even more vulnerable to more extreme ideologies, to conflicting ideologies, and potentially even the idea that this is nothing to do with Russia. It's not Russians' fault. It's traitors within the country, and it could be the queer community. I document this in the book. It could be ethnic minorities within Russia. It could be the Baltic states, Poles, Ukrainians once again. And that, if it is successful from the nationalists and you know the most xenophobic parts of society's perspective, that could lead us to yet more war in the future. From your perspective, you know, and I mean, there's there's certainly, I think, a pessimistic outlook that, that can come from all of this. But why is it important to continue to watch this, monitor this, understand this, and, and even speak directly to these younger Russians? This is going to be vital over the next few years because the leadership of Russia today is the old guard. Putin is 70. He's not getting any younger. All the alternatives for power are people that won't have Putin's grip over the elites in society and they may come and go therefore we need to be looking to the young we need to be directing them away from this sort of material immediately and we can do so if social media is such an effective and powerful tool for the russian state to indoctrinate its young we can reach into their social media spaces and have an impact today so we're not just uh, you know bystanders here no, it's tempting to be bystanders. And I understand those who would argue that, you know what, we've had enough of trying to help Russia. Russia is committing terrible crimes in Ukraine. We're just going to win this war. We're going to leave them to it and, you know, try and ignore them, cut them out of our lives and our existences entirely. But I don't think that's a realistic possibility. And the sooner we act, the sooner we reach out and the sooner we try and shepherd Russia's young away from this sort of ideology, the easier it will be in the long run for us, for them, and in particular for Ukraine. An important book, given the situation, given the stakes, it's called Z Generation Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Much more to your website, igarner.net. Dr. Garner, thank you so much for joining us here today. I really do appreciate this. Thanks for having me. There you go. That's uh, Ian Garner, historian, Russia analyst. Uh, his latest book, it's called Z Generation Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.